Good morning. In our epistle reading from Ephesians chapter 5, as we just read, St. Paul tells us some things that we are not to do as well as some things to do. The list, of course, is not exhaustive, and it's summarized very, very clearly and very beautifully in verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Well, we're well into the season of Lent, and in a few weeks we will observe Holy Week as we focus on our Lord's fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And isn't that a beautiful way of putting something so ghastly, so brutally cruel as the crucifixion of our Lord? After our Lord's arrest on the day that we call Good Friday, the religious leaders, having falsely accused him of treason, handed him over to the Roman authorities in exchange for a known convicted murderer because they could not legally put Jesus to death. And so upon Pilate's orders, the soldiers scourged him with whips that were laden with pieces of broken glass and metal. They stripped him naked, mocked him, crushing a crown of thorns into his head of this so-called king. They drove spikes through his wrists and ankles, hanging him on a wooden cross to die a very slow and deliberate, painful death. And all of this on display before a crowd who constantly ridiculed and mocked him. And after all that, Luke's gospel tells us the first words from our Lord's lips were, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You and I, as followers of Jesus, are called to do the same. The Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses, even as we forgive those who trespass against us. It's so familiar. It's part of our liturgy, and I dare say it's part of the prayers of, of many of us as well during the day. But do you realize what it is we're, that we're asking God to do? We're asking God to forgive us even as we, to the extent that we forgive others, inasmuch as we have forgiven those who have wronged us. Lord, we're praying, forgive us. Now, throughout the New Testament, we're called to do this, not just in the Lord's Prayer. Colossians chapter 3, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And then in this, again in this morning's reading, our, our reading from Ephesians, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Thus, I dare say, you and I are never more godly. We are never more Christ-like than when we ourselves forgive those who have wronged us. Skip Gray, a gentleman who worked with the Navigators for many years, he was actually a mentor to our former dean here, Henry Baldwin, in his earlier days of ministry, calls this kind of forgiveness redemptive forgiveness. Redemptive meaning something has been regained, 
something has been restored. And I believe the greatest example of this in the Holy Scripture is the story of Joseph and his brothers. Being his father, Jacob's favorite son, Joseph's uh, jealous brothers were set to murder him and would have when slave traders came along, happened to pass on that way, and they figured probably we might as well make a few shekels on the deal, no need to get our hands dirty. So they sold him to these slave traders and led their father Jacob to believe that, well, Joseph might have gotten attacked by a wild animal and killed, and we're very sorry. Well, Joseph wound up in Egypt, a slave in the house of a man named Potiphar, who was a high-ranking military leader, whose wife falsely accused Joseph of assaulting her. But this, of course, was out of anger because Joseph had refused her advances repeatedly. And I've sometimes wondered why Potiphar didn't just simply have Joseph killed. That would have been a normal thing to do, and he could have done that. I suspect that this was not the first time this had happened, but Potiphar could hardly afford not to punish Joseph in some way, and so he somewhat mercifully threw him into prison. But two years later, with nothing changed, Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, had disturbing nightmares, and none of his aides could interpret them. A former cellmate of Joseph's in prison just happened to work in the palace and advised Pharaoh to consult Joseph. Through Joseph, God revealed to Pharaoh the meaning of his nightmares. The land of Egypt would experience seven years of agricultural prosperity, followed by a seven-year famine. Pharaoh wisely took action, promoting Joseph to what we would probably call something like the prime minister, second in command, only answerable to Pharaoh. And under Joseph's wise management, the nation was prepared. Unlike the surrounding nations, they not only survived, but they thrived. And Joseph, of course, became, and rightly so, a national hero. But back home, his brothers and their families were not doing so well as most people in the region weren't. Hearing that there was food in Egypt, they decided to make the journey to Egypt, looking to buy food. And of course, they did not at first recognize Joseph. But when he revealed his true identity to them, Scripture says in Genesis 45, verse 3, that they were speechless. They were dismayed at his presence. That, no doubt, is an understatement. They were terrified, I'm certain. No doubt, uh, he could have taken sweet revenge on them. There would have been no questions asked. No one would have probably even blamed him for it. But that's not what he did. Joseph, because Joseph believed in God's providential care, because he believed in God's sovereign control over the events of our life, even over cruel and selfish acts such as those perpetrated by his brothers, could say to them in Genesis 45, Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Now, understandably, they found this very hard to believe. They were suspicious. So later we find in Genesis 50, Joseph tells his brothers again, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. The way Joseph overcame his anger and bitterness towards his brother and found the grace to truly 
forgive them from the heart, is the same as it is for us. Joseph saw that it was the sovereign hand of God that brought him to Egypt, that led him to his position of great power, and thus enabled him to not only prosper, but to rescue his father and brothers and their families, who of course will later be known as God's chosen people, the tribes of Israel. Beloved, we rarely see God's providence at the time. And sometimes we'll never even see it until we're on the other side. But it's there. It's always there. And thus we can always practice redemptive forgiveness, real forgiveness. For the God of Joseph is our God, whose son went to the cross to pay the price for our sins so that we can be forgiven and thus find the grace in that to forgive others. For our Lord bids us, his followers, to take up the cross as well. Forgiveness is part of what it means to take up the cross. Knowing that even as the cross of Jesus brought forgiveness to us, we can, and indeed we must, bring that same forgiveness to others. Skip Gray says that in redemptive forgiveness, we go way, way beyond just making the best of things. He says, you redeem the act by turning it from harmful to helpful. And you redeem the person by setting him free from his debt to you. But that raises another question, doesn't it? What is forgiveness? I found that forgiveness, to me at least, is much easier to think of in terms of what it is not than in what it is. And, and these points that I'm going to give you right now are from uh, the late theologian Lewis Smedes, who wrote extensively about the matter of forgiveness. He says, first of all, it is not necessarily forgetting. It's not forgetting. Uh, some things should be forgotten and can be forgotten, but deep hurts can rarely be erased from one's awareness. Secondly, it is not reconciliation. Now, reconciliation may happen, but reconciliation takes two people. It takes both parties. But an injured party can still forgive, even if the reconciliation never happens. Thirdly, it is not condoning. Forgiveness does not condone, it does not necessarily excuse bad or sinful or hurtful behavior. Fourthly, it is not dismissing or minimizing. Forgiveness involves taking the offense seriously, not just shrugging it off as, well, don't worry about it. It is not pardoning. And I find this one most interesting. A pardon is a legal transaction. We usually see it in courtroom dramas and that sort of thing. It's a legal transaction that releases the offender from the consequences of his or her action. Whereas forgiveness, and get this, is a personal transaction that releases the one offended, the aggrieved party from the offense. You want to get free from it? That's how you get free, through forgiveness. And finally, it is not sentimental. And this comes from Bishop Desmond Tutu. Forgiveness means abandoning your right to pay back the perpetrator in his own coin in like manner. But it is a loss that liberates the victim. Not so much the one who perpetrated it, but it releases us and liberates us. Now, all this raises yet another question. What are the limits of our forgiveness? Well, Peter asked that same question of our Lord, did he not? In Matthew 18, Peter came up and said to him, Lord, 
How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, Oh, I do not say to you seven times. And for a second he probably thinks, Oh, good. But 77 times, or as some translations have it, 70 times seven. That's 490 times. Not what Peter or us expect to hear. Sometimes, as C.S. Lewis points out, though, the work of forgiveness has to be done over and over again, does it not? We forgive, Lewis says. A week later, some chain of thought carries us back to the original offense, and we discover the old resentment blazing away as if nothing had been done about it at all. We need to forgive our brother 70 times 7, not only for the 490 offenses, but for one offense. I'm convinced that it's only as we let go of our anger, our desire to get even, our resentment, that we can ever truly forgive. And we cannot do that apart from taking up the cross ourselves and dying, even as our Lord did, dying not on the cross, but dying to ourselves, putting to death our ego, putting to death our pride, our self-interest, our reputation, our wounds, and so forth. And sometimes that takes time. But the old saying, time heals all wounds, no, that's very misleading. It may take time, and for grievous offenses, it may indeed take time. But time alone will not do it. In fact, time alone will often cause the wound to fester and swell and get worse and worse and worse. Skip Gray concludes by asking this question, and we do, let's ask ourselves this this morning. Are you willing to suffer the pain and humiliation of the cross? That's the question. Will you forgive and embrace those who sin against you and see what they meant for harm as sent from God? That's how Joseph forgave his brother's betrayal. We often think of Lent as a time of giving stuff up, especially stuff we like. <laughs> but it's usually something like ice cream or chocolate or french fries or something like that. Some of you, some of us, need to give up resentments, coldness to those brothers and sisters you don't see eye to eye with, grudges that you hold on to, or maybe it's just that little dark spot in your heart that you have for someone who wounded you a long, long time ago. Those who have hurt you by the things they have done, by the things they have left undone in thought, word, and deed. And I know who each and every one of you here today is thinking of. I know who you're thinking of. How do I know that? And don't, don't panic. I'm, I'm not going to call you out on this. But the person that you're thinking of is the person that you need to forgive is the one that came to your mind even in these last few minutes that you thought of. Someone came to your mind. And that raises one final question. And my question to each of you is this. What are you waiting for? How long has it been? At the end of the prayer our Lord has taught us, he says in the next breath, the very next breath, and we obviously don't always go there when we're praying the Lord's Prayer, he says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. Now, I need to be very clear about this, so please, please hear me well. This is not some spiritual quid pro quo, as if God is saying, okay, let's make a deal. Um, you, uh, if you will forgive others, 
then I will forgive you. That is not what our Lord is saying. No, it is rather Joseph asking his brothers, am I in the place of God? Am I in the place of God? You see, when we refuse to forgive, that's what we're doing. We're playing God, who is perfect and sinless and needs no forgiveness whatsoever. He, God, and he alone is the judge of all the earth, as Father Abraham acknowledged, who will always ultimately do what is just. But, beloved, when we refuse to forgive, when we refuse, we are putting ourselves in the place of God. We are saying to God, I'm good. Those who have wronged me, those who have cheated me and said terrible things and so forth, they need your forgiveness. But I don't. And therefore, we remain unforgiven. This morning I end where we began. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And dearly beloved, we are never more like him than when we forgive others. So during this season of Lent, forget giving up chocolate or french fries unless you want to or need to. Try giving up something you truly hold near and dear to you, such as your pride, your anger, your self-righteousness, those hurts and wounds that you hold inside and cherish and nurture and feed and nurse. Just do it. Even if it takes 490 times, beloved, just do it. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.